Section 10 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the street sellers of live birds. The bird sellers in the streets are also the bird catchers in the fields, plains, heaths and woods, which still surround the metropolis. And in compliance with established precedent, it may be proper that I should give an account of the catching before I proceed to any further statement on the procedures subsequent thereunto. The bird catchers are precisely what I have described them in my introductory remarks. An intelligent man, versed in every part of the bird business and well acquainted with the character of all engaged in it, said they might be represented as of the fancy in a small way and always glad to run after and full of admiration of fighting men. The bird-catcher's life is one essentially vagrant. A few gypsies pursue it, and they mix little in street trades, except as regards tinkering, and the mass, not gypsies, who become bird-catchers, rarely leave it for any other avocation. They catch unto old age. During last winter two men died in the parish of Clerkenwell, both turned seventy, and both bird-catchers, a profession they had followed from the age of six. The mode of catching I will briefly describe. It is principally effected by means of nets. A bird net is about twelve yards square. It is spread flat upon the ground, to which it is secured by four stars. These are iron pins, which are inserted in the field and hold the net, but so that the two wings, or flaps, which are indeed the sides of the nets, are not confined by the stars. In the middle of the net is a cage with a fine wire roof, widely worked containing the call-bird. This bird is trained to sing loudly and cheerily, great care being bestowed upon its tuition, and its song attracts the wild birds. Sometimes a few stuffed birds are spread about the cage as if a flock were already assembling there. The bird-catcher lies flat and motionless on the ground, twenty or thirty yards distant from the edge of the net. As soon as he considers that a sufficiency of birds have congregated around his decoy, he rapidly draws towards him a line called the pool line, of which he has kept hold. This is so looped and run within the edges of the net, that on being smartly pulled, the two wings of the net collapse and fly together, the stars still keeping their hold, and the net encircles the cage of the call-bird, and encloses in its folds all the wild birds allured round it. In fact, it then resembles a great cage of network. The captives are secured in cages, the call-bird continuing to sing as if in mockery of their struggles, or in hampers, proper for the purpose, which are carried on the man's back to London. The use of the call-bird as a means of decoy is very ancient. Sometimes, and more especially in the dark, as in the taking of nightingales, the bird-catcher imitates the notes of the birds to be captured. A small instrument has also been used for the purpose, and to this Chaucer, although figuratively, alludes, quote, So the bird is beguiled with the merry voice of the fowler's whistle when it is closed in your net. End quote. Sometimes, in the pride of the season, a bird catcher engages a costermonger's pony or donkey cart, and perhaps his boy, the better to convey the birds to town. The net and its apparatus cost one pound. The call bird, if he have a good wild note, goldfinches and linnets being principally so used, is worth ten shillings at the least. The bird-catcher's life has many, 
and to the constitution of some minds irresistible charms there is the excitement of sport not the headlong excitement of the chase where the blood is stirred by motion and exercise but still sport surpassing that of the angler who plies his finest art to capture one fish at a time while the bird catcher despises an individual catcher but seeks to ensnare a flock at one twitch of a line there is moreover the attraction of idleness at least for intervals and sometimes long intervals perhaps the great charm of fishing and basking in the lazy sunshine to watch the progress of the snares birds however and more especially linnets are caught in the winter when it is not quite such holiday work a bird dealer not a street seller told me that the greatest number of birds he had ever heard of as having been caught at one pool was nearly two hundred my informant happened to be present on the occasion pools of fifty one hundred and one hundred and fifty are not very unfrequent when the young broods are all on the wing of the bird-catchers including all who reside in woolwich greenwich hounslow isleworth barnet uxbridge and places of similar distance all working for the london market there are about two hundred the localities where these men catch are the neighbourhoods of the places i have mentioned as their residences and at holloway hampstead highgate finchley battersea blackheath putney mortlake chiswick richmond hampton kingston eltham kershalton streatham the tootings woodford epping snaresbrook walthamstow tottenham edmonton wherever in fine are open fields plains or commons around the metropolis i will first enumerate the several birds sold in the streets as well as the supply to the shops by the bird catchers i have had recourse to the best sources of information of the number of birds which i shall specify as supplied or caught it must be remembered that a not very small proportion die before they can be trained to song or inured to a cage life i shall also give the street prices all the birds are caught by the nets with call birds excepting such as i shall notice i take the singing birds first the linnet is the cheapest and among the most numerous of what may be called the london caught birds for it is caught in the nearer suburbs such as holloway the linnet however the brown linnet being the species is not easily reared and for some time ill brooks confinement about one half of those birds die after having been caged a few days the other evening a bird catcher supplied twenty-six fine linnets to a shopkeeper in pentonville and next morning ten were dead but in some of those bird shops and bird chambers connected with the shops the heat at the time the new broods are caught and caged is excessive and the atmosphere from the crowded and compulsory fellowship of pigeons and all descriptions of small birds with white rats hedgehogs guinea-pigs and other creatures is often very foul so that the wonder is not that so many die but that so many survive some bird connoisseurs prefer the note of the linnet to that of the canary but this is far from a general preference the young birds are sold in the streets at threepence and fourpence each the older birds which are accustomed to sing in their cages from a shilling to two shillings sixpence 
the catch of linnets, none being imported, may be estimated, for London alone, at 70,000 yearly. The mortality I have mentioned is confined chiefly to that year's brood. One-tenth of the catch is sold in the streets. Of the quality of the street-sold birds I shall speak hereafter. The bullfinch, which is bold, familiar, docile, and easily attached, is a favourite cage-bird among the Londoners. I speak, of course, as regards the body of the people. It is as readily sold in the streets as any other singing bird. Piping bullfinches are also a part of street trade, but only to a small extent, and with bird-sellers who can carry them from their street pitches, or call on their rounds at places where they are known, to exhibit the powers of the bird. The piping is taught to these finches when very young, and they must be brought up by their tutor, and be familiar with him. When little more than two months old, they begin to whistle, and then their training as pipers must commence. This tuition, among professional bullfinch trainers, is systematic. They have schools of birds, and teach in bird classes of from four to seven members in each, six being a frequent number. These classes, when their education commences, are kept unfed for a longer time than they have been accustomed to, and they are placed in a darkened room. The bird is wakeful and attentive from the want of his food, and the tune he is to learn is played several times on an instrument made for the purpose and known as a bird organ, its notes resembling those of the bullfinch. For an hour or two the young pupils mope silently, but they gradually begin to imitate the notes of the music played to them. When one commences, and he is looked upon as the most likely to make a good piper, the others soon follow his example. The light is then admitted, and a portion of food, but not a full meal, is given to the birds. Thus by degrees, by the playing on the bird organ, a flute is sometimes used, by the admission of light, which is always agreeable to the finch, and by the reward of more and more, and sometimes more relishable food, the pupil practices the notes he hears continuously. The birds are then given into the care of boys, who attend to them without intermission in a similar way, their original teacher still overlooking, praising or rating his scholars, till they acquire a tune which they pipe as long as they live. It is said, however, that only five per cent of the number taught pipe in perfect harmony. The bullfinch is often pettish in his piping, and will in many instances not pipe at all, unless in the presence of someone who feeds it, or to whom it has become attached. The system of training I have described is that practised by the Germans, who have for many years supplied this country with the best piping bullfinches. Some of the dealers will undertake to procure English-taught bullfinches, which will pipe as well as the foreigners, but I am told that this is a prejudice, if not a trick, of trade. The mode of teaching in this country, by barbers, weavers, and bird fanciers generally, who seek for a profit from their painstaking, is somewhat similar to that which I have detailed, but with far less elaborateness. The price of a piping bullfinch is about three guineas. These pipers are also reared and taught in Leicestershire and Norfolk, and sent to London as are the singing bullfinches, which do not pipe. The bullfinches netted near London are caught more numerously about Hounslow than elsewhere. In hard winters, they are abundant in the outskirts of the metropolis. The yearly supply, including those sent from Norfolk and so on, 
is about thirty thousand. The bullfinch is hearty compared to the linnet, I was told, but of the amount which are the objects of trade, not more than two-thirds live many weeks. The price of a good young bullfinch is two shillings sixpence and three shillings. They are often sold in the streets for a shilling. The hawking, or street trade, comprises about a tenth of the whole. The sale of piping bullfinches is of course small, as only the rich can afford to buy them. A dealer estimated it at about 400 yearly. The goldfinch is also in demand by street customers, and is a favourite from its liveliness, beauty, and sometimes sagacity. It is moreover the longest lived of our caged small birds, and will frequently live to the age of 15 or 16 years. A goldfinch has been known to exist 23 years in a cage. Small birds generally rarely live more than nine years. This finch is also in demand because it most readily of any bird pairs with the canary, the produce being known as a mule, which from its prettiness and powers of song is often highly valued. Goldfinches are sold in the streets at from sixpence to one shilling each and when there is an extra catch, and they are nearly all caught about London, and the shops are fully stocked, at threepence and fourpence each. The yearly catch is about the same as that of the linnet, or 70,000, the mortality being perhaps 30%. If any one casts his eye over the stock of hopping, chirping little creatures in the window of a bird shop, or in the close array of small cages hung outside, or at the stock of a street seller, he will be struck by the preponderating number of goldfinches. No doubt the dealer, like any other shopkeeper, dresses his window to the best advantage, putting forward his smartest and prettiest birds. The demand for the goldfinch, especially among women, is steady and regular. The street sale is a tenth of the whole. The chaffinch is in less request than either of its congeners, the bullfinch or the goldfinch, but the catch is about half that of the bullfinch, and with the same rate of mortality. The prices are also the same. Green finches, called green birds, or sometimes green linnets in the streets, are in still smaller request than our chaffinches, and that to about one half. Even this smaller stock is little saleable, as the bird is regarded as only a middling singer. They are sold in the open air at tuppence and threepence each, but a good green bird is worth two shillings sixpence. Larks are of good sale and regular supply, being perhaps more readily caught than other birds, as in winter they congregate in large quantities. It may be thought to witness the restless throwing up of the head of the caged skylark, as if he were longing for a soar in the air, that he was very impatient of restraint. This does not appear to be so much the fact, as the lark adapts himself to the poor confines of his prison, poor indeed for a bird who soars higher and longer than any of his class, more rapidly than other wild birds, like the linnet and so on. The mortality of larks, however, approaches one-third. The yearly take of larks is 60,000. This includes skylarks, woodlarks, titlarks and mudlarks. The skylark is in far better demand than any of the others for his stoutness of song, but some prefer the titlark from the very absence of such stoutness. Fresh-catched larks are vended in the streets at sixpence and eightpence, 
but a seasoned bird is worth two shillings sixpence. One-tenth is the street sale. The larks for the supply of fashionable tables are never provided by the London bird-catchers, who catch only singing larks for the shop and street traffic. The edible larks used to be highly esteemed in pies, but they are now generally roasted for consumption. They are principally the produce of Cambridgeshire, with some from Bedfordshire, and are sent direct, killed, to Leadenhall Market, where about 215,000 are sold yearly, being nearly two-thirds of the gross London consumption. It is only within these 12 or 15 years that the London dealers have cared to trade to any extent in nightingales, but they are now a part of the stock of every bird shop of the more flourishing class. Before that, they were merely exceptional as cage birds. As it is, the domestication, if the word be allowed with reference to the nightingale, is but partial. Like all migratory birds, when the season for migration approaches, the caged nightingale shows symptoms of great uneasiness, dashing himself against the wires of his cage or his aviary, and sometimes dying in a few days. Many of the nightingales, however, let the season pass away, without showing any consciousness that it was, with the race of birds to which they belonged, one for a change of place. To induce the nightingale to sing in the daylight, a paper cover is often placed over the cage, which may be gradually and gradually withdrawn, until it can be dispensed with. This is to induce the appearance of twilight or night. On the subject of this night singing, however, I will cite a short passage. Quote, the nightingale is usually supposed to withhold his notes till the sun has set, and then to be the only songster left. This is, however, not quite true, for he sings in the day, often as sweetly and as powerfully as at night. But amidst the general chorus of other singing birds, his efforts are little noticed. Neither is he by any means the only feathered musician of the night. The woodlark will, to a very late hour, pour forth its rich notes, flying in circles round the female when sitting on her nest. The skylark, too, may frequently be heard till near midnight, high in the air, soaring as if in the brightness of a summer's morning. Again, we have listened with pleasure long after dark to the warblings of a thrush, and been awakened at two in the morning by its sweet serenade. End quote. It appears, however, that this night singing, as regards England, is on fine summer nights when the darkness is never very dense. In far northern climates, larks sing all night. I am inclined to believe that the mortality among nightingales, before they are reconciled to their new life, is higher than that of any other bird, and much exceeding one half. The dealers may be unwilling to admit this, but such mortality is, I have been assured on good authority, the case. Besides that, the habits of the nightingale unfit him for a cage existence. The capture of a nightingale is among the most difficult achievements of the profession. None are caught nearer than Epping, and the catchers travel considerable distances before they have a chance of success. These birds are caught at night, and more often by their captor's imitation of the nightingale's note, than with the aid of the callbird. Perhaps a thousand nightingales are reared yearly in London, of which three-fourths may be, more or less, songsters. The inferior birds are sold at about two shillings each, the street sale not reaching one hundred. 
but the birds, caged and singing, are worth a pound each, when of the best, and ten shillings, twelve shillings, and fifteen shillings each, when approaching the best. The mortality I have estimated. Redbreasts are a portion of the street-sold birds, but the catch is not large, not exceeding three thousand, with a mortality of about a third. Even this number, small as it is, when compared with the numbers of other singing birds sold, is got rid of with difficulty. There is a popular feeling repugnant to the imprisonment, or coercion in any way, of a robin, and this no doubt has its influence in moderating the demand. The redbreast is sold when young, both in the shops and streets, for a shilling, when caged and singing, sometimes for a pound. These birds are considered to sing best by candlelight. The street sale is a fifth, or sometimes a quarter, all young birds, or with the rarest exceptions. The thrush, throstle, or, in Scottish poetry, mavis, is of good sale. It is reared by hand for the London market, in many of the villages and small towns at no great distance, the nests being robbed of the young, wherever they can be found. The nestling food of the infant thrush is grubs, worms and snails, with an occasional moth or butterfly. On this kind of diet the young thrushes are reared until they are old enough for sale to the shopkeeper or to any private patron. Thrushes are also netted, but those reared by hand are much the best, as such a rearing disposes the bird the more to enjoy his cage life, as he has never experienced the delights of the free hedges and thickets. This process the catchers call rising from the nest. A throstle thus rose soon becomes familiar with his owner, always supposing that he be properly fed and his cage duly cleaned, for all birds detest dirt. And among the working men of England, no bird is a greater favourite than the thrush. Indeed, few other birds are held in such liking by the artisan class. About a fourth of the thrushes supplied to the metropolitan traders have been thus rose, and as they must be sufficiently grown before they will be received by the dealers, the mortality among them, when once able to feed themselves in their wicker-work cages, is but small. Perhaps somewhere about a fourth perish in this hand-rearing, and some men, the aristocrats of the trade, let a number go when they have ascertained that they are hens, as these men exert themselves to bring up thrushes to sing well, and then they command good prices. Often enough, however, the hens are sold cheap in the streets. Among the catch supplied by netting, there is a mortality of perhaps more than a third. The whole take is about 35,000. Of the sale, the streets have a tenth proportion. The prices run from 2 shillings sixpence and 3 shillings for the fresh cot, and 10 shillings, 1 pound, and as much as 2 pounds for a seasoned throstle in high song. Indeed, I may observe that for any singing bird, which is considered greatly to excel its mates, a high price is obtainable. Blackbirds appear to be less prized in London than thrushes, for, though with a mellower note, the blackbird is not so free a singer in captivity. They are rose and netted in the same manner as the thrush, but the supply is less by one-fifth. The prices, mortality, street sale and so on are in the same ratio. The street sale of canaries is not large, not so large, I am assured, by men in the trade, as it was six or seven years ago, 
more especially as regarded the higher-priced birds of this open-air traffic. Canaries are now never brought from the group of islands, thirteen in number, situate in the North Atlantic and near the African coast, and from which they derive their name. To these islands, and to these alone, as far as is known to ornithologists, are they indigenous. The canary is a slow flyer and soon wearied. This is one reason, no doubt, for its not migrating. This delightful songster was first brought into England in the reign of Elizabeth, at the era when so many foreign luxuries, as they were then considered and stigmatised accordingly, were introduced. Of these were potatoes, tobacco, turkeys, nectarines, and canaries. I have seen no account of what was the cost of a canary bird when first imported, but there is no doubt that they were very dear, as they were found only in the abodes of the wealthy. The bird trade seems, moreover, to have been so profitable to the Spaniards, then and now the possessors of the isles, that a government order for the killing or setting at liberty of all hen canaries caught with the males was issued in order that the breed might be confined to its native country, a decree not attended with successful results as regards the intention of the then ruling powers. The foreign supply to this country is now principally from Holland and Germany, where canaries are reared in great numbers, with that care which the Dutch in especial bestow upon everything on which money-making depends, and whence they are sent or brought over in the spring of every year, when from nine to twelve months old. Thirty years ago the Tyrolese were the principal breeders and purveyors of canaries for the London market. From about the era of the peace of 1814, on the first abdication of Napoleon, for ten or twelve years they brought over about two thousand birds yearly. They travelled the whole way on foot, carrying the birds in cages on their backs, until they reached whatever port in France or the Netherlands, as Belgium then was, they might be bound for. The price of a canary of an average quality was then from five shillings to eight shillings sixpence, and a fair proportion were street sold. At that period, I was told, the principal open-air sale for canaries, and it is only of that I now write, was in Whitechapel and Bethnal Green. All who were familiar with those localities may smile to think that the birds chirping and singing in these especially urban places were bred for such street traffic in the valleys of the Rhetian Alps. I presume that it was the greater rapidity of communication and the consequent diminished cost of carriage between England, Holland and Germany that caused the Tyrolese to abandon the trade as one unremunerative even to men who will live on bread, onions, and water. I have perhaps dwelt somewhat at length on this portion of the subject, but it is the most curious portion of all, for the canary is the only one of all our singing birds which is solely a household thing. Linnets, finches, larks, nightingales, thrushes, and blackbirds are all free denizens of the open air, as well as prisoners in our rooms but the canary with us is unknown in a wild state. Though not very handy, wrote in 1848 a very observant naturalist, the late Dr. Stanley, Bishop of Norwich, canaries might possibly be naturalised in our country by putting their eggs in the nests of sparrows, chaffinches, and other similar birds. The experiment has been partially tried in Berkshire, where a person for years kept them in an exposed aviary out of doors, 
and where they seemed to suffer no inconvenience from the severest weather. The breeding of canaries in this country, for the London supply, has greatly increased. They are bred in Leicester and Norwich, weavers being generally fond of birds. In London itself, also, they are bred to a greater extent than used to be the case, barbers being among the most assiduous rearers of the canary. A dealer who trades in both foreign and home-bred birds thought that the supply from the country and from the continent was about the same, 8,000 to 9,000 each, not including what were sold by the barbers, who are regarded as fanciers, not to say interlopers, by the dealers. No species of birds are ever bred by the shop-dealers. The price of a brisk canary is five shillings or six shillings, but they are sold in the streets as low as one shilling each, a small cage worth sixpence being sometimes included. These, however, are hens. As in the life of a canary there is no transition from freedom to enthralment, for they are in a cage in the egg, and all their lives afterwards, they are subject to a far lower rate of mortality than other street-sold birds. A sixteenth of the number above stated, as forming the gross supply, are sold in the streets. The foregoing enumeration includes all the singing birds of street traffic and street folks' supply. The trade I have thus sketched is certainly one highly curious. We find that there is round London a perfect belt of men employed from the first blush of a summer's dawn through the heats of noon, in many instances during the night, and in the chills of winter, and all labouring to give the city-pent men of humble means one of the peculiar pleasures of the country, the song of the birds. It must not be supposed that I would intimate that the bird-catcher's life, as regards his field and wood pursuits, is one of hardship. On the contrary, it seems to me to be the very one which, perhaps unsuspected by himself, is best suited to his tastes and inclinations, nor can we think similar pursuits partake much of hardship when we find independent men follow them for mere sport, to be rid of lassitude. But the detail of the birds captured for the Londoners by no means ends here. I have yet to describe those which are not songsters, and which are a staple of street traffic to a greater degree than birds of song. Of these my notice may be brief. The trade in sparrows is almost exclusively a street trade, and numerically considered not an inconsiderable one. They are netted in quantities in every open place near London, and in many places in London. It is common enough for a bird-catcher to obtain leave to catch sparrows in a wood-yard, a brick-field, or places where is an open space certain to be frequented by these bold and familiar birds. The sparrows are sold in the streets generally at a penny each, sometimes halfpenny, and sometimes a penny halfpenny, and for no purpose of enjoyment, as in the case of the cheap songbirds, but merely as playthings for children, in other words, for creatures willfully or ignorantly to be tortured. Strings are tied to their legs, and so they have a certain degree of freedom, but when they offer to fly away they are checked and kept fluttering in the air, as a child will flutter a kite. One man told me that he had sometimes sold as many as two hundred sparrows in the back streets about Smithfield on a fine Sunday. These birds are not kept in cages, and so they can only be bought for a plaything. They oft enough escape from their persecutors. 
but it is not merely for the sport of children that sparrows are purveyed, but for that of grown men, or, as Charles Lamb, if I remember rightly, qualifies it, when he draws a Pentonville sportsman with a little shrubbery for his preserve, for grown cockneys. The birds for adult recreation are shot in sparrow matches, the gentleman slaughtering the most being, of course, the hero of a sparrow battue. One dealer told me that he had frequently supplied dozens of sparrows for these matches at two shillings a dozen, but they were required to be fine bold birds. One dealer thought that during the summer months there were as many sparrows caught close to and within London as there were goldfinches in the less urban districts. These birds are sold direct from the hands of the catcher, so that it is less easy to arrive at statistics than when there is the intervention of dealers who know the extent of the trade carried on. I was told by several, who had no desire to exaggerate, that to estimate this sparrow sale at 10,000 yearly, sold to children and idlers in the street, was too low, but at that estimate the outlay at a penny a sparrow would be £850. The adult sportsman may slaughter half that number yearly in addition. The sporting sparrows are derived from the shopkeepers, who, when they receive the order, instruct the catchers to go to work. Starlings used to be sold in very great quantities in the street, but the trade is now but the shadow of its former state. The starling, too, is far less numerous than it was, and has lost much of its popularity. It is now seldom seen in flocks of more than forty, and it is rare to see a flock at all, although these birds at one period mustered in congregations of hundreds and even thousands. Ruins and the roofs of ancient houses and barns, for they love the old and decaying buildings, were once covered with them. The starling was, moreover, the poor man's and the peasant's parrot. He was taught to speak, and sometimes to swear. But now the starling, save as regards his own note, is mute. He is seldom tamed or domesticated and taught tricks. It is true, starlings may be seen carried on sticks in the street, as if the tamest of the tame, but they are braced. Tapes are passed round their bodies, and so managed that the bird cannot escape from the stick, while his fetters are concealed by his feathers, the street-seller, of course, objecting to allow his birds to be handled. Starlings are caught chiefly Ilford Way, I was told, and about Turnham Green. Some are rows from the nest. The price is from ninepence to two shillings each. About three thousand are sold annually, half in the streets. After having been braced or ill-used, the starling, if kept as a solitary bird, will often mope and die. Jackdaws and magpies are in less demand than might be expected from their vivacity. Many of the other birds are supplied the year round, but daws and pies for only about two months, from the middle of June to the middle of August. The price is from sixpence to a shilling, and about one thousand are thus disposed of, in equal quantities, one-half in the streets. These birds are for the most part reared from the nest, but little pains appear to be taken with them. The red pole is rather a favourite bird among street buyers, especially where children are allowed to choose birds from a stock. I am told that they most frequently select a goldfinch or a red pole. These birds are supplied for about two months. About 800 or a 1,000 is the extent of the take. The mortality and prices are the same as with the goldfinch, 
but a goldfinch in high song is worth twice as much as the best red pole. About a third of the sale of the red pole is in the streets. There are also 150 or 200 black caps sold annually in the open air at from threepence to fivepence each. These are the chief birds, then, that constitute the trade of the streets, with the addition of an occasional yellow-hammer, wren, jay, or even cuckoo. They also, with the addition of pigeons, form the stock of the bird shops. I have shown the number of birds caught, the number which survive for sale, and the cost, and, as usual, under the head of statistics, will be shown the whole annual expenditure. This, however, is but a portion of the London outlay on birds. There is, in addition, the cost of their cages and of their daily food. The commonest and smallest cage costs sixpence, a frequent price being a shilling. A thrush's basket cage cannot be bought, unless rubbish, under two shillings sixpence. I have previously shown the amount paid for the green food of birds and for their turfs and so on, for these are all branches of street commerce. Of their other food, such as rape and canary seed, German paste, chopped eggs, biscuit, and so on, I need but intimate the extent by showing what birds will consume, as it is not a portion of street trade. A goldfinch, it has been proved by experimentalising ornithologists, will consume 90 grains in weight of canary seed in 24 hours. A greenfinch, for whose use 80 grains of wheat were weighed out, ate 79 of them in 24 hours, and on another occasion ate in the same space of time 100 grains of a paste of eggs and flour. 16 canaries consumed 100 grains weight of food, each bird, in 24 hours. The amount of provision thus eaten was about one-sixth of the full weight of the bird's body, or an equivalent were a man to swallow victuals in the same proportion of 25 pounds in 24 hours. I may remark, moreover, that the destruction of caterpillars, insects, worms, and so on, by the small birds, is enormous, especially during the infancy of their nestlings. A pair of sparrows fed their brood 36 times an hour for 14 hours of a long spring day, and, it was calculated, administered to them in one week 3,400 caterpillars. A pair of chaffinches also carried nearly as great a number of caterpillars for the maintenance of their young. The singing birds sold in the street are offered either singly in small cages, when the cage is sold with the bird, or they are displayed in a little flock in a long cage, the buyer selecting any he prefers. They always appear lively in the streets, or indeed a sale would be hopeless, for no one would buy a dull or sick bird. The captives are seen to hop and heard to chirp but they are not often heard to sing when thus offered to the public, and it requires some little attention to judge what is but an impatient flutter and what is the fruit of mere hilarity. The places where the bird-sellers more especially offer their birds are Smithfield, Clerkenwell Green, Lisson Grove, the City and New Roads, Shepherdess Walk, Old Street Road, Shore Ditch, Spitalfields, Whitechapel, Tower Hill, Ratcliffe Highway, Commercial Road East, Poplar, Billingsgate, Westminster Broadway, Covent Garden, Blackfriars Road, Bermondsey, mostly about Dockhead, and in the neighbourhood of the Borough Market. The street sellers are all itinerant, carrying the birds in cages, 
holding them up to tempt the notice of people whom they see at the windows, or calling at the houses. The sale used to be very considerable in the cut and Lambeth Walk. Sometimes the cages with their inmates are fastened to any contiguous rail. Sometimes they are placed on a bench or stall, and occasionally in cages on the ground. To say nothing in this place of the rogueries of the bird trade, I will proceed to show how the street-sold birds are frequently inferior to those in the shops. The catcher, as I have stated, is also the street-seller. He may reach the dials, or whatever quarter the dealer he supplies may reside in, with perhaps thirty linnets, and as many goldfinches. The dealer selects twenty-four of each, refusing the remaining dozen on account of their being hens, or hurt, or weakly birds. The man then resorts to the street to effect a sale of that dozen, and thus the streets have the refuse of the shops. On the other hand, however, when the season is at its height, and the take of birds is the largest, as at this time of year, the shops are stocked, the cages and recesses are full, and the dealer's anxiety is to sell before he purchases more birds. The catchers proceed in their avocation. They must dispose of their stock. The shopkeeper will not buy at any figure, and so the streets are again resorted to, and in this way fine birds are often sold very cheap. Both these liabilities prevail the year through, but most in the summer, and keep up a sort of poise, but I apprehend that the majority, perhaps the great majority, of the street-sold birds are of an inferior sort, but then the price is much lower. On occasions when the bird trade is overdone, the catchers will sell a few squirrels or gather snails for the shops. The buyers of singing birds are eminently the working people, along with the class of tradesmen whose means and disposition are of the same character as those of the artisan. Grooms and coachmen are frequently fond of birds. Many are kept in the several mews, and often the larger singing birds, such as blackbirds and thrushes. The fondness of a whole body of artificers for any particular bird, animal, or flower is remarkable. No better instance need be cited than that of the Spitalfields weavers. In the days of their prosperity, they were the cultivators of choice tulips, afterwards, though not in so full a degree, of dahlias, and their pigeons were the best flyers in England. These things were accomplished with little cost, comparatively, for the weavers were engaged in tasks grateful and natural to their tastes and habitudes, and what was expense in the garden or aviary of the rich was an exercise of skill and industry on the part of the silk weaver. The humanising and even refining influence of such pursuits is very great, and as regards these pure pleasures, it is not seldom that the refinement which can appreciate them has proceeded not to, but from, the artisans. The operatives have often been in the van of those who have led the public taste from delighting in the cruelty and barbarity of bear and bull-baiting and of cock-fighting, among the worst of all possible schools, and very influential those schools were, to the delight in some of the most beautiful works of nature. It is easy to picture the difference of mood between a man going home from a dog-fight at night, or going home from a visit to his flowers, or from an examination to satisfy himself that his birds were all right. The families of the two men felt the difference. Many of the rich appear to remain mere savages in their tastes and sports. Battues, lion and hippopotamus hunting, and so on, 
all are mere civilised barbarisms. When shall we learn, as Wordsworth says, quote, never to blend our pleasure or our pride with sorrow of the meanest thing that feels? End quote. But the change in Spitalfields is great. Since the prevalence of low wages, the weaver's garden has disappeared, and his pigeon coat, even if its timbers have not rotted away, is no longer stocked with carriers, dragoons, horsemen, jacobins, monks, poulters, turtles, tumblers, fantails, and the many varieties of what is in itself a variety, the fancy pigeon. A thrush or a linnet may still sing to the clatter of the loom, but that is all. The culture of the tulip, the dahlia, and sometimes of the fuchsia, was attended, as I have said, with small cost. Still, it was cost, and the weaver, as wages grew lower, could not afford either the outlay or the loss of time. To cultivate flowers, or rear doves, so as to make them a means of subsistence, requires a man's whole time, and to such things the Spitalfields man did not devote his time, but his leisure. The readers who have perused this work from its first appearance will have noticed how frequently I have had to comment on the always realised indication of good conduct, and of a superior taste, and generally a superior intelligence, when I have found the rooms of working people contain flowers and birds. I could adduce many instances. I have seen and heard birds in the rooms of tailors, shoemakers, coopers, cabinet-makers, hatters, dressmakers, couriers, and street-sellers, all people of the best class. One of the most striking, indeed, was the room of a street confectioner. His family attended to the sale of the sweets, and he was greatly occupied at home in their manufacture, and worked away at his peppermint rock in the very heart of one of the thickliest populated parts of London, surrounded by the song of thrushes, linnets, and goldfinches, all kept not for profit, but because he loved to have them about him. I have seldom met a man who impressed me more favourably. The flowers in the room are more attributable to the superintending taste of a wife or daughter, and are found in the apartments of the same class of people. There is a marked difference between the buyers or keepers of birds and of dogs in the working classes, especially when the dog is of a sporting or varmint sort. Such a dog-keeper is often abroad, and so his home becomes neglected, he is interested about rat-hunts, knows the odds on or against his dog's chances to dispatch his rats in the time allotted, loses much time and customers, his employers grumbling that the work is so slowly executed, and so custom or work falls off. The bird-lover, on the other hand, is generally a more domestic, and perhaps consequently a more prosperous and contented man. It is curious to mark the refining qualities of particular trades. I do not remember seeing a bulldog in the possession of any of the Spitalfields silk weavers. With them all was flowers and birds. The same I observed with the tailors and other kindred occupations. With slaughterers, however, and drovers, and billingsgate men, and coachmen, and cabmen, whose callings naturally tend to blunt the sympathy with suffering, the gentler tastes are comparatively unknown. The dogs are almost all of the varmint kind, kept either for rat-killing, fighting, or else for their ugliness. For pet or fancy dogs they have no feeling, and in singing birds they find little or no delight. 
End of section 10